Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. Uh, I'd like to welcome Don to the show. Uh, hi, Don. Hi, Bill. Don's a member of Alaron Family Groups and he'll be sharing his journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and be talking about how Alaron's helped him to cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So Don, we usually start talking about growing up and things that influenced your life. So I guess to start with, what, what was your relationship to the alcoholic? Yeah, well, I've got two alcoholics that I've got relation to. Uh, the first one was my uh, father and the second one is my son. My relationship with my father was obviously his son. And I grew up living with my grandmother. We all lived there and I noticed there was, from a very young age, a lot of drinking in that place and our family. My father sort of progressively drank more and our home was a bit like a magnet for all these heavy drinkers and I'd, I don't know whether that was because my mother allowed it to be or or whether it uh, she was forced to have it that way, but uh, she was a, a nice person and I think she allowed it to happen. My family um, left my grandmother's when I was about age six and I stayed with my grandmother they moved out to the northern suburbs in Geelong which was a commission area and I stayed with my grandmother until I was about 11 years old then I moved out to the northern suburbs that was a bit of a wake-up call for me (laughs) coming from a nice area in Geelong to um going out to the northern suburbs, but that's what it was. I noticed when I got there that there was a lot more drinking going on and there was two or three nights a week, there was these six other, I call them drunks, alcoholic people uh, that would come to the place and they'd drink till all hours of the night and there'd be arguments and mainly over religion and things like sport and politics. All the standard things that alcoholics get upset about. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I thought our family life was pretty normal. I don't blame my parents for what I believe I went through. I think they tried their best. They were born in pretty hard times and My father was raised by a a very hard person and he was a hard person and and that's the way I was raised. There was never any hugging or anything like that. The six people that came there, slowly but surely they all 
disappeared. The first one that uh, disappeared got hit by um, a bus or a truck or something coming out of the Norline Hotel one night and uh, he got killed. Then there was one of them that had a, a milk delivery service. Well, the horse and cart ran over him one night and he became um, paraplegic and he still drank, but he was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Another fellow, well, he got psoriasis or, and uh, he died. One over the road came over one Friday night and he said to me, oh, is your father home? And I said, no. And so uh, he said, oh, can you ask him to keep an eye on me tonight? Anyhow, I never saw Dad that night and I uh, told Dad the next morning and uh, we both went over there and uh, we found him with his head in the oven. And Then there was another one. He was a very nasty piece of work. He used to start all the fights and really talk to people nastily. I remember coming home, uh, I was about 18 by then, and I came home. One night, him and my mother were together and um, I, of course, didn't like that. So I went and got my rifle and loaded my rifle and I was about to let him have it between the eyes and my brother came out of the bedroom and lifted the barrel up before it discharged. Had that had a different outcome, my life would have been so much different. But anyhow, two years later, I got married and uh, I moved out. Not long after that, my mother took the other two siblings and she left home and dad became very, very bad. He was having oh, the, what we called them in those days, the DTs. And you, I used to take um, my two children out there and he was in a very bad way. Eventually, the only one of the six that was left had gone into AA and he eventually got my father after a few relapses into AA and my father became a recovered alcoholic. I think he lived another 20 years after that. Him and uh, his mate helped a lot of other people in the town with the help of a local nurse that used to help people. I went on to live my, the rest of my life knowing something was not nice about me or not right but not knowing what it was I was a very angry person didn't trust anyone didn't want anyone near me if anybody got close to me I'd push them away I'd get them before they got me I raised, I was never going to raise my children like I was raised but I ended up being exactly like my father except I didn't drink yeah, that's an interesting concept, is it? Isn't it? Being having the ism, but not not drinking, having the same reactions to life. It's very much a learned experience, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So taking you back a bit to growing up. So did you have any siblings? Yes, they were both younger than me. My brother was uh, five years my junior, and my sister was seven years my junior. I spent a lot of my teens looking after them, you know, because my father didn't work. We didn't get the doll in those days. My mother would go to get work when she could. So I'd 
put the tea on and look after the family. Yeah. It, it must have been hard leaving your grandmother's place, I guess, until you are probably a primary school, until you left her place. Yeah. So was that a comfortable environment, going to school? That was a really good time of my life, yeah. She was, um, she was a lovely person and um, it was in Manifold Heights and that was a very good suburb in Geelong. Nice people at the school. So did, did you have close friends? In that area, I had four good friends, yes, that we used to get on well together. So how did it change then when you left? You probably went to high school uh, when you left, really. Um, so was that a big change? No, the big change was I stayed at Manifold Heights until uh, the finish of Grade 5, and then I went to the North Shore for Grade 6. Well, that was a big change for me. The things that I didn't know when I, uh, I learned at that school was just mind-boggling, you know, and um, I don't want to se- seem like a snob, but different people, you know, and um, they were hard, you know, some of them. And I didn't befriend any of those too much. Just That was a big change for me. Then I went to uh, a technical school. I left there at the end of year nine. I'd had enough by then. So uh, I didn't have a very good education. I've never been good at English or reading or anything like that, but I was in a gifted uh, mathematics thing. And uh, so I left school and got it, you know, and and started in a trade. Okay. So what, what did you do initially? Initially, I was a boilermaker, welder. Things would have changed over the, over the years in, in welding. Yeah. There were good things from coming from a hard background like that because it gave me the um, incentive to do well in my career. And I did well in my career, you know. So it did give me an incentive and that was probably one of the good things that came out of it. Yeah. So what about relationships then? It, it's... Growing up in an alcoholic situation, it's difficult to form close relationships and you talked earlier about not trusting people. So was it difficult to form a relationship with the other sex? Yes, uh, to, and particularly to trust. But I, I met one and she just took control. She's a very forgiving person. I raised my family and treated my wife with indifference. I never really properly showed them love, but she she was a kind person and able to get me through it. Yeah. Growing up in an alcoholic situation, you, you don't mature. It's very difficult to have good, close relationships because of that lack of trust. So did you find it difficult going to work? There was always seemed to be people that, that I didn't like didn't trust and couldn't get on with. By the age of 26, I had myself in a position where I was a workshop foreman. So I started to tell people what to do and it didn't matter so much. So it was, that was a bit of a help in a way. 
uh, I just found myself a person that always sort of got into things, you know. Firstly, at, I think at about 22 years of age, I was a union organiser. <laughs> and uh, I'm probably a little bit like yourself, Bill. I always got myself on committees and in, involved in this and involved in that. I've always been that way inclined, but I, there's always been people at different places that, um, that I didn't like and didn't get on with, you know. Yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm like you in that way. There's when I was working, I'd often leave a workplace, and fifty percent of the people were sad to see me go, and the other fifty percent were quite happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now it, it does have a profound effect on your ability to deal with people, and I think growing up in an alcoholic situation as well, because you're dealing with somebody who needs, they need a lot of support. That I used to always think I was right. And, you know, that sort of confidence that I know the right thing to do and I know when to do it. And it sort of came up because I was, you know, often expected to fix up whatever my father broke or whatever he didn't do. But, yeah, it's a, it is a burden in the end. Yeah, that's right. Well, so we might take a short break there. Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ plus can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter. Salam Habibi. Salam Habibi. This is Marushti and Lukman from Salam Radio Show. Tune in on Sundays from 4 till 5 p.m. on 3CR for some modern Arabic mazika. Salam Radio Show will be bringing you every week a search of new modern and reinterpreted sounds of Arabic mazika ranging from trap, rap, hip-hop, pop, R&B, experimental, ambient and electronic music. Yalla habaybna. Shunatrin. Join us every Sunday on Salam Radio Show. Mainstreaming Arabic mazika. Uh, this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free show and how to contact us. Today I'm talking with Don. Uh, we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of the Allen family groups. So Don, before the break, we are talking about work and I guess conflict at work, but 
in an alcoholic situation, conflict's sort of an ever-present. There's always conflict about something. And I guess that means that you're fairly used to, to conflict. But were you somebody who avoided conflict in the workplace or were you somebody who sorted out? I think at times I avoided it. I would go out of my way to not say things that would start conflict or would hurt other people. A few years later, I can't remember exactly when, I, I did go to a psychologist and that lady told me to speak my mind and not bottle things up. So I started trying to do that and I would be going along really nicely for a period of time at work, nothing going wrong. And I would think to myself, gee, I'm going well. And the moment I thought that within a day or so, it was though I did something to stuff it up, you know. I think now that I used to think to myself, maybe I'm not good enough to deserve how well things are going or something. I don't know. But anyhow, that's, that's what um, I do think nowadays about, that uh, I didn't think that I deserved to be feeling good and happy like I was at that particular time. So I did something to stuff it up. Once I did some, something to stuff it up, I would um, dwell on that 24 hours a day for weeks and weeks and weeks. <laughs> yeah, it would really get me down. So you, you got married. You know, obviously, once you get married, you start having children. So did children complicate your life? Yes, I used to find that uh, I remember when I, when when I was a child sitting at uh, a, a lot of the problems for me and the the trouble I used to get into when I was a child and a lot of the anger that used to come from my father always seemed to happen at the dinner table. I found that uh, with my children and my wife. I always felt that uh, when I got to the uh, dinner table, there was always tension within me. That seemed as though the, um, for me, the time that where we talked about reports or how they were going at school or what this happened or what that happened. And that's where I'd always be hard on others at the uh, kitchen table. I never used to hit the children, but I, I verbally, I had a lot of discipline, you know. I was always afraid of how people would perceive them or our family, you know. And really, I think that affected my children right up till the age of probably 17, 18. Yeah. So what were your children? Boy and a girl. Okay. Which one first? Uh, the boy. So did you treat them differently? Did you have different standards? Yes, definitely. Expectations, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Probably harder on the boy and not so hard on the girl. Just treated them with indifference, you know. We did a lot of things together. I did a lot of 
I went out of my way to be, you know, involved in everything that they were in, on all their committees that they were involved with. Took them everywhere, but still too hard on them, you know. They would suffer because the same thing that was going on in the work life was going on in the family life, where I'd be um, think, oh, things are going too well, and then I would feel down on myself, you know. If I uh, spoke to the children harshly, I would punish myself for days, you know. Just didn't like that. Yeah, it's funny. That's that transference of guilt. If if you do something that you judge later was too harsh, the guilt that you carry is pretty enormous. Yeah. <laughs> that's really what I found with my father's drinking, that I'd react to his drinking and I'd be so, I guess, cross of myself for being so uh, and nasty that he'd sort of use that guilt against me. It'd make me feel worse for doing it. Yeah. And, and I'd feel worse for doing it. Yeah. So did your wife try to sort of protect the children from you? I never knew it, but she, um, and I never knew she even felt this way, but she used to say to the kids, oh, don't worry about him. He's had a pretty hard time. Now, I, I've never told her I had a hard time, but obviously my mother used to tell her that and she would have seen it when we went out there and uh, my father was, you know, sort of having the DTs and all, all the drink that was around or that, so she would have seen it. But apparently that's what she used to tell the children, although I didn't know about it, that that's what she was telling them. And if I was sort of being a bit too hard on them or something like that, no, she wouldn't say anything. Probably should have. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned your son also had problems with alcohol. So when did that start? How old was he? Probably 17 when he first started going to, you know, the they'd have parties occasionally and he'd have a drink. I really noticed that he bought a home when he was uh, in his 20s. We used to go down there and he was renovating it. We used to help him with bits and pieces. And when I'd go there, I'd notice all the, the bottles. And I said to him one day about it. And, yeah. and then he got a girlfriend. And uh, when he was about 21, I said to him, oh, David, I'm a bit worried you're drinking too much. And he said, oh, well, I drink because of you. And I said, oh, I said, you're an adult, David. Don't worry, blame me for your drinking. He said to me, he said, when Kelly uh, tells me to stop, I'll stop. So from 21 to 47, we used to go out there and they'd say to us that um, sometimes, oh, David's in bed. He's not feeling too well today. I'd say to his, um, to his wife, oh, has he been out last night? And she'd say yes. <laughs> so I'd know exactly what was going on. And this used to go on pretty regularly towards the end. Oh, we'd go out there sometimes and uh, it used to frighten me, actually. He'd be yelling, of a Sunday morning especially, he'd be yelling at his daughter 
And, you know, it was just like probably I used to do or my father used to do, but it frightened me, you know. I used to try and talk to him about it, but didn't do any good. When he was 46, he rang me up and he said, oh, Dad, can you come out and have a talk to me and Kelly? And I said, why? And he said, oh, well, Kelly's got a problem. So... (laughs) So I went out there. You know it's coming, don't you? Yeah. I went out there and Kelly was sitting there like a zombie, you know. I said, what's wrong? And he said, oh, well, she's good for 20 days a month and then she's not good for 10 days. And I said, I said what's the problem? And he said, oh, she reckons I drink too much and I just wanted to get out. Anyhow, there was probably a lot more said, which I can't remember at the moment, but in the end, I said, well, I said, listen, Di, I said, you've got to work it out between you. I said, I can't work it out for you. And I said, I, I really don't want Kelly out of my life at this point in time. I said, mum and I like her and um, we think you should be able to work it out between us. So about 12 months went by and we, Dawn and I would go for a ride and Occasionally we'd see um, Kelly walking along the river and looking pretty sad and we'd stop and have a chat and she just didn't say nothing. But then I got a phone call from my daughter said, oh, listen, Dad, can you come out here? David's gone missing on Friday and uh, he's taken the dog and a rope. And I said all right, I'll come out. So I went out there and everybody was there, all their friends, Kelly's parents, everybody was there. And Kelly was like a zombie and I had a talk to her and I said, what happened? She said, we're sick of him. Every night he drinks till he blacks out and he's lying on the floor and the children are stepping over him. And she said, I've just had enough. And uh, so... Myself and the children, and the the children at the time were 14 and 16. She said, uh, myself and the children confronted him and told him that that we're not very happy with what's going on and this sort of thing. So he's gone. He's been gone for three days. Anyhow, I hung around there for... uh, probably two hours and we'd watch this car go past and that car go past and I just said I've got to go home I can't I can't cope with this you know anyhow I I went home and my daughter rang me and said oh dad can you come out he's here so I went out and I just couldn't believe the mess that my strong son was in you know he smelt of beer He stunk. He'd just been booked by the police (laughs) coming down the road. Everybody was there saying, all putting their six-penneth in. I just said to him, I said, well, Dave, I said, you told me 26 years ago that when Kelly told you to stop, you'd stop. And I said, she's told you now, what are you going to do about it? He said, oh, well, I'll stop. And I said, well, there's only one way you'll stop is if you go to a rehab. He said, I'll go. 
And uh, so we organised it. We rang up the rehab and uh, we took him up to Melbourne the next morning. Some of the girls had got rid of his alcohol, but I bought him a couple because otherwise he could have gone into um, relapse or something. And then we got him into rehab and he was supposed to be in there 90 days. We went out there a week later. Of course, him and a few others had shaved all their hair off. (laughs) I thought to myself, this is not going to work. But anyhow, at 45 days into it, he said to me, Dad, I don't need to finish this. Get me out of here. And I was unhappy about that. But he said... Well, it all happens out of here. He said, all the meetings are outside here. And he said, that's where I get the help. So he's 47 years old. He wanted out of there. So out he came. And on the way home, he said to me, um, he said, don't worry, Dad. He said, I'll make you proud. And that's seven years ago and he hasn't had a drink. So, Wow. But in the documents that the rehab gave us a booklet. And in the booklet, it said that the addicted person will do much better if the family goes to Al-Anon. So I rang an Al-Anon meeting and we, six of us rolled up there. Uh, Myself, my wife, my daughter, his wife and two grandchildren. At the time, Fortunately, that night there was a Alateen meeting on. So the two children went into the Alateen meeting. Anyhow, it wasn't a good meeting that night. The sharing wasn't real good for when new people were there. And they didn't talk about how you should attend a number of meetings and that sort of thing. But anyhow, we went home and we said, oh, well, this is not for us. And the two grandchildren didn't want to go to Alateen. About four weeks passed and my daughter-in-law said to me, oh, I need help. So I picked another meeting. We went to that meeting, but she wouldn't go in. So I, I said, oh, well, I said, I'm going to go in and I'll, I'll let you know what it's like, you know. So I went in and it was a good meeting. They just said to me, oh, well, you know, you just got to keep coming back. So the meeting that I didn't like at the time suited me, the time and that. So I went back there the next week and I just used to think, (laughs) oh, well, I'm a managing director. Nothing wrong with me. I'm going to go there and help these nice people. The other nice groups helping my son. I'm going to go there and help these nice people. <laughs> it took me about eight months. It, it dawned on me. I kept hearing things that I could associate with and just tiny little things kept adding up within me. And after about eight months, my children and my grandchildren and my wife were all saying, you're a lot better now. And I was feeling better in myself too. So after about eight months, I woke up that 
while I was there to help my son get better, and I was helping all these nice people, it was actually them that was helping me. And from there, that's when I realised that, you know, I'd been, um, I don't blame my parents. Um, They did their best, but I think the drinking did affect me and and that. And I'd tried so many other ways. I just knew something was needed fixing. I'd been to different groups. Uh, I've been to psychologists. I even saw one psychiatrist. None of those people fixed me properly and made me feel a lot better. But after that eight months, uh, I started to feel so much better. My family had come around. It would be my birthday. At 7 o'clock or 10 to 7, I'd say, listen, I've got to go (laughs) and just leave them. (laughs) I had to go to my meeting. For seven years, I've barely missed a meeting, you know, and uh, I've been involved in service of all different types. And I'm just so much of a better person nowadays, you know. Yeah. I love my children. I tell them I love them. I love my wife. I tell her I love her. I had a call from a lady on Telstra uh, about six months ago. I actually told her I loved her. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. We might take another short break there. When you land on a dick. Woohoo! And they're coming to evict. Woohoo! When you want renters' rights. Woohoo! Then you gotta enjoy the fight. Woohoo! The 28th of March marks the end of the eviction moratorium in Victoria. Thousands of Victorian renters will be at threat of eviction. The housing crisis is a choice made by the government. Andrews will deliberately make thousands of renters homeless. If he could stop evictions before, he can do it again. The Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, are calling on your support. Sunday, March 28th, 12pm, State Parliament. Stand with us for our demands on the Victorian Government to cancel debt, end evictions, extend rental protections. Join us in the fight for renters' rights. Rahu.org.au Join your Renters and Housing Union, Rahu, today. Merhaba, bugün nasılsınız? A Turkish eco-feminist approach to dismantle the toxic misconception of the good immigrant. Intrigued? Well, so are we. The Good Immigrant is broadcasted in Turkish every Thursday between 6.30pm to 7pm. Tell your friends and family, because you have a date with Özesuen Özgü, 3CR, 8.55am, Thursdays, 6.30pm to 7pm. See you all then. This is the Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. I'm talking with Don, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alanon. 
Um, so, Don, you said you've been in Alan about eight months before you realised that it was actually changing you. How do you think that change came about for somebody who didn't think there was anything wrong with them? How do you think they got to you? They made you realise that things could change. Well, firstly, um, I believe that they taught me the understanding of the disease. They taught me that um, that I couldn't change someone. That I knew I wasn't responsible. I always thought I was responsible for my father's drinking. He always used to tell me that uh, if it hadn't have been for you. And uh, I always thought that, um, that I was responsible for his drinking. I always thought that I was responsible for my son's drinking because of um, the manner in which I raised him. And um, Eleanor taught me that um, the, the three C's. <laughs> and to me, that, that made sense. The slogans made common sense. The steps, what they said, made common sense and the big thing that helped that I got benefit out of was the um, serenity prayer. I used to worry to no end about different things and uh, I'd worry about things that happened 30 years ago and you know things that were happened in our family and outside our family and that and I'd just get those things in my head. And the serenity prayer just made so much common sense, you know. And I just, for the first eight months, I was repeating that probably 10, 20 times a day. And that uh, was a big thing for me. I, I used to notice that um, things that used to upset me, you know, like, driving and things going wrong when you were driving. Those sort of things didn't upset me any longer. If they did, I'd just say the serenity prayer and everything would be okay. And uh, I, would, I would be hearing different people saying things about how they controlled things that were happening to them alcohol related or not uh, some of the things were you know they were sometimes they they just talk about going to supermarket you know but just different things that that different people would say just were little things but they all added up into a big thing and uh, that's um, that helped me I was I, I'm not, um, because I only went to year nine, I'm not a really good reader. <laughs> I used to go to those meetings and I'd pray to my higher power, please don't give me that <laughs> one with that. 
anonymity in it. <laughs> I couldn't say it. <laughs> and um, yeah, but um, I was wasn't much good at reading, and uh, I was very poor with journaling. I don't journal much, but um, the meeting and what people were saying, uh, I got a lot out of that, you know. And uh, I went to some bigger meetings. Uh, in you know uh, the district would have an, an event, or the um, Victorian area office would have a, an event, and uh, you'd get a lot out of those too. Um, I just um, I just can't believe a lot of people come in and they don't stay. Um, they're missing so much, you know, and I get so much out of it too. Um, yeah. So how did, did it help you to understand, just understanding the disease concept of alcoholism? Yes, it did. But there's no, there's no blame once you get that. Very much, yeah. That's, uh, I never understood that. You know, I, I used to, um, I could never understand why my father drank. I could never understand why my son drank. I said, what do, you, what do you want to go around with your... I said, life's hard enough without going around with your brain swirling and that stuff, you know? And um, I could just never understand why, why they drank. And uh, once I, uh, once I um, learned that so quickly, that's probably one of the first things you learn in now on, is that uh, it's a disease like sickness like uh, anything else and um, a lot of a lot of people that first come say oh it's a choice well it might be a choice with your first one but a couple of years later it's not a choice for some people it's just part of the sickness and uh, I ended up going to some AA meetings you know and um, I actually came to like the people and uh, feel sorry for what they'd, you know, actually been through. Um, and, uh, yeah, so... Um, so did it give you empathy for your dad? Sorry? Did it give you empathy for your dad? Probably a little bit. I never hated him. I never hated him. I never loved him because I, I was never... I don't think I was taught love really, but um, yeah, I did understand. I understood that he didn't want to do what some of the things that he did. You know that that was part of the drinking. So um, and um, so, did, was your mother's life better once your father got into AA? She'd already left him, Bill. And both my wife and myself said they separated. He got sober. She married another person in Sydney. Then she eventually came back to Geelong. And he used to go with her everywhere. And he'd follow her around. And they got on better then than when they lived together. Yeah, that's what we always said. But he'd be, he'd be, he'd be trudging in the lead, and she'd be coming along behind, carrying everything. 
<laughs> but yes, they did get on better. <laughs> so what about the relationship with you and your wife? How's that improved? Oh, to no end. To no end. The trust is there with me. It's always been there with her. Uh, we talk. We do things together all the time. We love each other. We just, uh, just, just everything's better, Bill, you know. We do things together. We're really inseparable. Yeah. Does she go to Alan on too? No. Well, she flutters around the edge. She says that that's my thing. Yeah. I don't think she needs really needs Alan on. From the time we put David into, re she doesn't come from a alcoholic family. Her son, she never thought he drank too much. She never, when we went out there and uh, he was sick and things like that, she never blamed alcohol. When he when he was going to rehab, she had fully faith that uh, he would. Uh, do the right thing, recover and stop drinking. Uh, I don't think she needs Ellen on, you know. <laughs> but uh, she flutters around the edges. She talks to the ladies. Uh, if we have some event, she'll make um, sandwiches or something. She'll go along. She'll talk nicely to them. She doesn't sit for meetings. But, um, yeah, no. Flutters around the edge, I call it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, if anybody would like to find out more about Alan and Family Groups, uh, you can find them on 1300 252 or go online at alanon.org.au for more information about meetings uh, or phone contacts throughout Australia. Uh, that's about all we've got time for today. So I'd like to thank Don for joining me and sharing his Alan and Family Groups recovery experience with us. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. I hope you'll be able to join us next week uh, when we'll be talking again about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and we'll be joined by another member of Alan Family Groups. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe. Stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR. And to take us out, we have Cosmic Relations by Lafleur, courtesy of Australian Music Radio Airplay Project. to a
something different? The Heatherdale Bowls Club in Mitcham is offering tuition with equipment supplied for singles, couples and all family members to learn the game. You can play whether you are 9 or 90. It's fun and it's free. They are located in Heatherdale Road, Mitcham, just up from the Manhattan Hotel in a picturesque parkland area. Their website is hrbc.org.au or just ring Elise on 0409 258 645. That's 0409 258 645. A 3CR supporter. <laughs> 